And Mum's going to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Now for the matters you wrote about. <clears throat> it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her, her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as, as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has his, this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, <clears throat> it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burden with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man of or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in his life that the Lord assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is, an, is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keep God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, who, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were, to, you were bought... At a price, do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God, should he remain in the situation God called him to. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us 
words in the Bible which teach us how to uh, live as your people and to live holy lives which bring honour to you. We pray that you'd help us to understand this section of scripture this morning uh, and to apply it in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sexual sin has been around for a long time. Uh, One only has to look back in the Bible at how long ago Sodom and Gomorrah uh, went back and were destroyed to see how long it's been around. But it seems these days society increasingly tolerates uh, and promotes sexual sin. Perhaps this might be uh, due to some of the changes in technology that we notice. Uh, Computers and phones seems can publish uh, and broadcast just about anything. And sexual um, content is actually big business. So I've noticed that uh, capitalists are really getting behind uh, publishing uh, content of a sexual nature. Companies like credit card companies benefit from the sale of online pornography. Uh, And phone companies likewise are benefiting to the tunes of millions of dollars as visual images of a sexual nature can be sent from phone to phone. It seems that there's a proliferation of um, all things sexual. Even as you drive up the coast, it's hard to avoid uh, seeing billboards where my kids ask me to explain the content of them or to hear radio ads uh, which they're also asking to be interpreted. Uh, It seems that sexual uh, content especially promoting sex outside the bounds of marriage, is something that is uh, unavoidable and quite rampant these days. And as we uh, look at this passage before us today, we're looking at a passage where it's not a children's story. Uh, This is fairly earthy stuff, Uh, certainly as Paul challenged the church at Corinth to live God's way uh, in, in the face of problems to do with immorality. And there's certainly some uh, good lessons for us to be learning here in this passage as well. Well, the church at Corinth did have some problems. Uh, Paul was in Asia Minor, in Ephesus. He'd preached there successfully for two years in the hall of Tyrannus when some news uh, came to him about trouble in Corinth. And we see this um, news reported to Paul even at the start of the letter where he says in chapter 1 verse 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarrelling among you. And so this church is characterised by quarrelling in Corinth, but that's not the only um, problem. In chapter 7 verse 1, as Scott probably noted earlier, that there are some letters that are being sent uh, from the church to Paul. And some of the topics concern that of sex. In chapter 5, we learnt that there was immorality of a kind that wasn't even found among the unbelievers, where a man has his father's wife. That is, he was having sex with his stepmother and the church tolerated it. In chapter 6, Paul makes the point that Christians shouldn't be united to prostitutes. And it seems that that's also a problem within the church as well. And so a question that comes to our mind might be how did things start so well and then suddenly unravel and slip away? How did things get in such a muddle where an apostle has to write to people about their easygoing attitudes to adultery 
and visiting prostitutes. Well, it seems that there is problems in the way that they're thinking about the future. Uh, there's a big word called eschatology. They've got a, a problem with their thinking about the, the end times. And in chapter 15, uh, some people have drawn the conclusion that there is going to be no resurrection of the dead. And some people might have decided that on account of that, there's no judgment day from God either. So in chapter 15, verse 12, Paul writes, how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that's something that some people didn't believe in. And then later in chapter 15, verse 32 to 34, Paul draws out maybe some of what they thought about the implications of that for not being, there not being a judgment day. He says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, which is actually a, a bit of a euphemism for saying, you know, I'm, I'm fighting against sin. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And so some seem to be thinking, well, okay, no resurrection of the dead, no judgment day, let's just indulge in whatever behaviour we like. And the trouble is, they might have also thought this is now the age for reigning. Uh, Paul speaks about how the end of the ages has come upon them. Now that the Messiah has come, we are in the end of the ages. But they might think it's actually now the time for reigning in a sense like we might be reigning in heaven. But they're, they're thinking it might have started already. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. Uh, in the Bible we read, certainly in Revelation, that we will reign with Christ forever. These people might have thought that that's actually begun uh, in a complete way. But the other problem with their, their end time struggles and thinking about how if the ends come and there's no judgment... Uh, we can live how we like. The reality is their behaviour seems to have uh, infiltrated other people in the church. And so Paul uses an image about like a, a bit of yeast that works its way through a whole batch of dough. Uh, it's only, only a little bit uh, and it seems to have a big effect. Uh, and he talks in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 about how your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. And so he's making the case that if they tolerate sin within their church, uh, it affects the rest of the place. We spoke about this at youth group recently on Friday night and how, how I'd become aware of some youth groups in Sydney where uh, sexual immorality was tolerated uh, and it seemed to galvanise and become a characteristic of the whole youth groups and how we said that's not, that's not what God wants for his church. So whilst Paul spent some time correcting some teaching about uh, a man sleeping with his stepmother and he's corrected Christians going to spend time with prostitutes, he now turns his attention to some more positive teaching about um, husbands and wives. I'll pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. 
it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, so the topic here we, we see, they've written about how it is good for a man not to marry, or literally this is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that was a polite way of saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's, that's the issue that they've put to Paul. And Paul says, well, on account of the immorality and temptations to it, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It seems he probably meant that uh, in the context of, of pressures, uh, people should be married to one partner. Not polygamous, they shouldn't have several uh, marriage partners. Uh, they should have one husband or one wife. And he acknowledges a little later that that might not be the case for everyone and he uses himself as an example of that. But the context here of each man should have his own wife or each man should have his own husband might also bear the meaning that uh, people should be engaged in uh, sexual relations within marriage. Uh, just as Paul talked about in chapter 5 verse 1, he says, when a man has his father's wife... He means he's not marrying his stepmother, it means he's sleeping with her. And the rest of this passage seems to bear out that sense. Paul speaks in verse 3 of men and women having a marital duty to one another. In verse 4 of their bodies not belonging to themselves alone. In verse 5 of not depriving each other except by mutual agreement and then coming back together again. And so the uh, the tone of this passage is, is Paul talking about how people should be uh, engaged in sex in marriage. And several points uh, need to be mentioned about this passage. Firstly, Paul doesn't tell us everything that he's got to say about marriage in this section. Uh, he's dealing with their issue uh, and their question. And it leaves us asking a few questions. For example, who were these people that set the agenda for abstaining from sex within marriage? And why did this topic even come up? Well, some people thought that, uh, some commentators have concluded that some Jewish Christians have decided that now the Messiah has come and the end of the ages has come. Uh, it's the time like Jesus spoke about heaven, where there'll be no giving in marriage in heaven and we'll be like the angels. And so they thought that it's no longer the time for conceiving children, it's no longer the time for having kids uh, and it's not even the time for engaging in sexual intercourse. Well, that's, that's possibly one uh, camp but there might also have been an overreaction by some folk noticing that uh, there was a lot of sexual immorality within the church and so they've decided to swing the other way and say 
think it's a very spiritual thing to do to even abstain from sex within marriage. And that's why this topic may have come up. Uh, We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that Paul's attitude is we shouldn't be altogether overwhelmed with the matters of this life, whether we're married or not. Uh, And he says later on, we shouldn't be overwhelmed because this world in its present form is passing away. And he goes on to talk later about how the time is short. But later he does teach uh, that, as I said, we we shouldn't be concerned overwhelmingly with um, things like whether we are married or whether we're not. Uh, This time is short and that's why Paul's not, it seems, so concerned about whether he is married or isn't married. Either way, these issues and their context uh, are something that we don't know everything about, but they're, they're issues that they've raised with Paul and he's uh, trying to deal with them in his letter. But what does he say and what, what principles can we learn from this passage? Well, Paul teaches that men and women have a responsibility to meet the sexual needs of a marriage partner. In verse 3, the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. If we were to read the Greek literally at this point, it says, to the wife, let the husband render or give the debt and the wife to the husband. Uh, It's a similar expression to what Jesus used when uh, he said, uh, render to to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so he's talking about a, a duty there of tax to Caesar. He's saying we should give that tax to Caesar. Uh, and we're made in the image of God, we should give ourselves to God. Uh, when we think of a duty, uh, it, that's why the word debt's kind of coming up there, but it's, you're saying a marital duty is it's a bit different to stamp duty. Uh, there, is, there is tax to be paid in stamp duty, but this is of a, a different kind of duty. In any case, what we notice is that the emphasis is on the giver's responsibility. It's not on the receiver's demands. And it's notable that uh, we see that it cuts both ways. It's not just for the man, uh, it's certainly for the wife as well. And the reason for both having a responsibility to serve each other in the act of marriage is given in verse 4. It says, The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And so Paul gives the reason that uh, there's there's very much a partnership where people, in a sense, have authority over each other's body. But the emphasis, again, is on the giving and not so much in the taking in marriage. In verse 5, Paul speaks again about the giver's responsibility not to deprive the other person. And this word uh, deprive is like a word like cheating or defrauding. We, we shouldn't shortchange the other person. So he says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. As we've mentioned earlier, uh, there was that problem of people uh, lacking self-control in Corinth and because it seems it's possible marriages were out of balance, they were looking outside their marriage relationship uh, to have their needs fulfilled and they may have visited prostitutes for that reason. 
Paul does acknowledge that there is a time for abstaining, though, and he says that abstaining from sexual relations is a good thing to do and, and to have time to pray, whether to pray together or to pray as individuals, it's appropriate to abstain for a time. But he does argue that that shouldn't be a permanent feature of marriage, that if people abstain completely, uh, that there's going to be problems with temptation. So what can we say then uh, with respect to applying this passage to ourselves and as we think about how to apply the details here. Well, in summary form, we would want to say that men and women ought to acknowledge the needs of their spouse and think about their responsibility to give and serve the needs of their spouse. Secondly, we should be aware of the problems of temptation that exist, that if people did want to go down the path of permanently abstaining from sex in marriage, that that will lead to problems of um, probably looking outside that marriage relationship to have needs fulfilled. But I must say that uh, how this actually gets played out in individual marriages is really uh, a matter for the couple to work through uh, and resolve the details of themselves. Paul's not being uh, so prescriptive prescriptive here. He doesn't set up a timetable or anything like that. Uh, And in the seasons of stress and fatigue in life, uh, the normal challenges of getting through life, it's certainly uh, one of the joys of marriage to work through how this will actually get balanced out over time. But the the emphasis seems to be certainly on giving uh, to the other in marriage and not so much the emphasis on taking. And it seems to me that there's more satisfaction that comes from actually giving uh, than receiving. Okay, Paul does also talk about singleness being an option as well. Uh, He notes in verse 6, he says, I say this is a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So Paul acknowledges that it's not the case that each person will have their own spouse 100% of the time. Uh, Some people have the gift of being single. In Paul's case, that was true. And later on, he goes on to make the case that there are some advantages in being single uh, for the Lord. People can devote their uh, lives and their energy to the things of the Lord, and they're not having to be weighed down by some of the challenges that go with married life. And he also acknowledges that the time is short, and so people shouldn't be too worried. He says that... uh, it would be good for unmarried and for widows to remain as he is, but that if they don't have that gift, that's okay, they should marry. I'll pick it up in chapter 7, verse 8. Now to the unmarried and widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther and many other uh, monks and nuns did get married, Uh, Luther encouraged the application of this passage so that they wouldn't be um, burning with passion. And so he took himself a wife, the former nun Catherine von Bora. And a new image of the uh, ministry began to flourish where a married partner was living uh, with his own family and his wife like any other man. There used to be, uh, this is what Luther said at this time, there's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage, he says. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow that were not there before. 
And so there was a bit of a change as he started to apply this passage to uh, even the context of being a minister and that it's okay to be married. There were other problems, by the way, uh, if ministers didn't get married. Uh, sometimes they even had particular surnames for a child that was born to a Christian minister out of wedlock. And I think in uh, Scotland it was McTaggart or something like that. Uh, and so there were lots of cases where people knew that um, priests were being engaged in sexual activity anyway, but they just weren't married to the women they were having sex with. And so, yeah, there's lots of kids running around who didn't have a proper dad to look after them. And so this is a good application of that to say people should marry. The third point we'll address now is the lifelong nature of marriage uh, from verses 10 to 16. This is a situation where some Christians were married to non-Christians and they may have thought that they might not have been legitimate members of the church if that was the case. They may have thought that they should separate from a non-Christian marriage partner as well. But in this section, Paul reinforces uh, the teaching that Jesus has already given about the lifelong nature of marriage. He's spoken about it in Mark chapter 10 and also in Matthew 19. Jesus' teaching was that uh, what God has joined together, let, not man, let man not separate. This was when the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and saying, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, the answer is certainly no. But at Corinth, some might have decided, as I've said, that uh, if their spouse was an unbeliever, maybe they should separate. And Paul reinforces Jesus' teaching that uh, they should not do that. But he does say that in a circumstances where someone who's an unbeliever wants to desert the marriage, uh, then that person is free, that Christian person's free to let them go and presumably free to remarry. I'll pick it up in uh, chapter 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord, which I take it he's picking up on what Jesus has already taught. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, because it's Jesus doesn't seem to have talked as much about this. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? So we're getting the picture that even in cases where people are married to non-Christians, they shouldn't think that that's grounds for divorce. But does that mean that adultery and desertion are the only grounds for ending a marriage covenant? 
uh, and that the person's not free to remarry apart from other reasons, for other reasons apart from those. Well, this is a, a fairly uh, serious and thorny issue, and I don't think I could give it uh, complete justice in this talk now. Uh, if you'd like to check out what I think about the matter, you can have a look on the website uh, when I spoke on Matthew chapter 19 in 2009, uh, and the, my views will be online there. Suffice to say, Paul does give an example where a covenant has been broken and the person uh, leaves the marriage. Someone deserts and leaves that marriage. And it seems that in those circumstances, the Christian person is free to remarry. Personally, I believe there are other circumstances when marriage covenants can be broken. I don't think the list would be huge, but perhaps in a circumstance where there's a denial of someone's livelihood, where a person's promised to uh, care for the other person, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for rich, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, where they, where they choose not to give their marriage partner food and lodging, or they're persistently cruel, I would count those probably circumstances where a marriage covenant has been broken. And if it was a Christian couple, there should be a circumstance where that sin could be challenged and a person could repent so that they could preserve something of their marriage. But if a person was deliberate in their neglect of their marriage partner and cruel, and there was no sin that was repented of, then after a process of church discipline, uh, that that member who's breaking the covenant could be treated as no longer a Christian brother or sister, in which case they may be considered an unbeliever and it would seem in that circumstances uh, the believer would be uh, free to let them go. These circumstances would be uh, rare and I think the tone of the scripture is for people to hold their nerves in their marriages and to persevere at working through the, the challenges of life in marriage. And so I think one of the troubles in our society is that people are, are quick to race to marriages, marriage counsellors to dissolve their marriages. Uh, and some marriage counsellors even lose their nerve where they don't encourage people to persevere and to push through things. But God's word calls us to hold our nerve in marriage and to press through things. But as I said earlier, this is still a thorny issue and uh, not everything that I'll be saying now can resolve everything. Uh, it's, it's something that is complicated. There are some benefits, it seems, uh, where some Christian people do stick with their non-Christian marriage partners as well. Uh, Paul says, how do you know if you, will, um, if you won't save your unbelieving partner? If they, if they don't hear the gospel, the news that salvation's found... In Jesus, we can get right with God and have our sins forgiven. How do we know that the other partner might not get saved as a result of that marriage? And so another reason is given for staying together uh, is so that the other person might get saved. I heard of a marriage um, that I thought was on the rocks a while ago. I was a bit sceptical whether it would stand the test of time. And I found out um, semi-recently that... The, the husband became a Christian uh, and he, 
He's joined the church and he's flourishing and going from strength to strength. Uh, and that marriage is actually one that was like the ones we're looking at here in Corinth, a non-Christian and a Christian. And over time he became a Christian and they're going from strength to strength. We don't know what the future holds. We, we don't have perfect knowledge about what God will do in the future. And so we need to uh, keep our trust in him. Well, in the final section, uh, point four in your outlines, the topic seems to be about contentment with the situation that God's called people to. In verse 17, the term retain comes up and the word remain crops up in verse 20 and 24. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Nevertheless, each of you, each one of you, one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. I'll skip down to verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. And verse 24. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Well, the Christians at Corinth may have been unsettled and looking for big changes to happen in their social lives probably on the back of things that were changing in their lives as they became Christians. Some people began to abstain from sex within marriage. Some were leaving their spouses who were not believers. In verse 18, we find out that some people were attempting to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how they were doing that. And others were seeking to be circumcised. But Paul says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount the the essence of keeping God's law, the spirit of keeping God's law, and how God calls us to live as his people and to live his way, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved, as we put our trust in Jesus, we have a responsibility uh, to live his way. Some other people have uh, sought to change their social situation where they were slaves. Since they became Christians and have a a new freedom with God, it seems that they might have thought socially they needed to escape their slavery. But Paul also knew that um, if slaves went and sought their freedom unlawfully, uh, what would happen to them in that kind of society? It's the same thing that happened to Spartacus and thousands of others who, uh, when there was a slave uprising, uh, when they got caught, they were crucified, thousands of them, along the Appian Way into Rome. Paul understands that slavery is a dehumanising experience where people um, shouldn't be thought of as someone else's chattel or goods or to be owned by somebody else. But he's holding this in balance with the the end of the ages, which is coming. And so he says in verse 21 to 23, there's an interesting little balance here. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. In some ways he's saying, you can cope, you can survive. The end's coming. That's the important thing. But he does say, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man 
when he was called, is Christ's slave. Interesting balance. You were brought, bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So Paul can see that it is ideal that people um, do get their freedom if they can take it. And that's the right thing to do. Above all, he's still saying that people don't need to make massive social changes. If they're, if they're circumcised, well, they shouldn't seek to change that. If they're uncircumcised, they shouldn't seek to change that. If they're married to a non-Christian, they shouldn't seek to change that. There's, he's saying, stay as you are. He's not calling for a big revolution. In verse 24, he concludes, Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. He's not calling us to be revolutionary socially. Well, in conclusion, what can we say that this passage teaches us? Well, God's word reminds us that since Jesus has been raised from the dead, we do live in the last days. But we have to persevere uh, living God's way and being holy until the very end. Today, Paul's challenged uh, those who are married to serve each other in the act of marriage and to be mindful of the needs of the other person. He's called single people to remain as they are unless they have uh, not that gift of remaining single. And so it's better for them to marry than to burn with passion. And he's called people to persevere in their marriages, even if their spouse is an unbeliever. Finally, he said that slaves shouldn't be overwhelmed with their situation, but certainly to take their freedom if they can get it. Well, may God help us to be people who are content in the Lord, uh, content to serve him, and to work at being holy in the place that God has placed us, and to persevere as his holy people uh, with our faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins uh, until the very end of the ages when he returns again. Let's pray that God will help us do that. Hello, God, we thank you for this um, practical section of your word, which reminds us of the, the nature of marriage, that men and women ought to be serving one another uh, in the act of marriage and taking into account each other's needs. Father, we also pray for wisdom uh, to persevere with marriages, even uh, when there might be complexities and difficulties to work through, uh, acknowledging that it's your intention that marriage is a lifelong union. Father, we pray for folk who are single, uh, for their, their situation and their contentment. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember that we need to persevere in the way that you've called us. And we ask that you to help us to be strong in that, uh, but also look forward to the time when Jesus does come again to uh, bring a renewal of your creation and the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we pray for wisdom to live well as your people and to bring honour to your name. And Father, we pray for our church and uh, the purity of it, that we continue uh, to actually live up to how you call us to live. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.